Welcome to another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. Marcus Paff alongside Reggie Rizzo. On today's episode, an ocean beneath the surface of Saturn's moon. Artificial intelligence helps scientists decode ancient scrolls. Plus, mutant wolves with cancer-resistant genes. And on this day in history, War of the Worlds Chaos. That's coming up on Cool Stuff. For a moment, let's travel back to the year A.D. 79. That's when hundreds of papyrus scrolls being held in a library in the ancient Roman town of Herculaneum were burnt as the town was devastated by an intense blast of heat, ash, and pumice that also destroyed nearby Pompeii. Now, with the help of AI, three students possessing an obviously keen intellect have deciphered a portion of the scrolls for the first time. For context, the scrolls can't be unrolled. Scientists tried that when they were first discovered in the 18th century before realizing they would immediately turn to ash. In more recent years, per GNN, some of them were held at the Institut de France, where they were imaged at the Diamond Light Source Particle Accelerator. Don't ask me to explain that process, I can't. Uh, these high-resolution CT scans of the scrolls were then released to anyone who wanted to try to decode them by Silicon Valley figures Daniel Gross and Nat Friedman. In fact, Gross and Friedman, along with computer scientist Brent Seals from the University of Kentucky, created what's known as the Vesuvius Challenge in March of last year, promising to dole out up to $1 million in cash prizes for engineers who could program AIs that read the carbonized papyrus. Well, the grand prize of $700,000 was just awarded to three students, Yousef Nader, Luke Ferreter, and Julian Schillinger, the trio was able to create a deep learning program that helped decode more than 2,000 Greek letters from the scroll. Among those letters were four deciphered passages of 140 characters each, with at least 85% of characters legible. Their submission was substantially more recoverable than almost all others, who tended to manage about 30%. So what did the scroll say? Well, oddly enough, it appears to be a philosophical discourse on the sources of pleasure. That per The Guardian. It touches on music and food, capers in particular. One specific line reads, quote, In the case of food, we do not right away believe things that are scarce to be absolutely more pleasant than those which are abundant, end quote. The author, speculated by papyrologist Robert Fowler to be Greek philosopher Philodemus, also appears to call out other philosophers of the time by stating they have, quote, nothing to say about pleasure, either in general or particular, end quote. I can only assume those are fighting words amongst philosophers. <laughs> Fowler, who's also an emeritus professor of Greek at Bristol University and chair of the Herculaneum Society, went on to say, quote, this is a complete game changer. There are hundreds of these scrolls waiting to be read, end quote. And the possibilities don't end there. Some believe a fresh excavation of Herculaneum is called for, given the potential for additional scrolls to be buried there. And Fowler believes the technology could also be applied to papyrus wrap around Egyptian mummies, lending further insight into ancient Egyptian civilization. In the immediate, the Vesuvius Challenge continues this year with a goal of reading 85% of the scroll while laying the foundations for reading all of those that have been excavated. In terms of process, scientists want to fully automate that, 
uh, of tracing the surface of the papyrus inside each scroll and improve ink detection on the most damaged parts. Per Friedman, quote, when we launched this less than a year ago, I honestly wasn't sure it'd work. We know people say money can't buy happiness, but they have no imagination. This has been pure joy. It's magical what happened. It couldn't have been scripted better, end quote. By the way, I didn't want to let this slip past. Here's a brief bio of the three students who helped make this possible. Yusuf Nader is an Egyptian PhD student in Berlin who was able to read a few columns of the text back in October, winning the second place First Letters Prize. Luke Verriter is a 21-year-old college student and SpaceX intern from Nebraska. He was the first person in history to read an entire word from the inside of a Herculaneum scroll, which was the word purple. This won him the first place, First Letters Prize, a few weeks before Yusuf's results. And finally, Julian Schillinger is a Swiss robotics student at ETH Zurich who won three segmentation tooling prizes for his work on Volume Cartographer, which enabled the 3D mapping of the papyrus areas. So three very brilliant young minds here at work. Reggie, after reading or hearing about this story, uh, my first thought is I can't wait to see or read an entire scroll and find out exactly what was being discussed back in AD 79. We have a, a little bit of insight right now, but more to come, it sounds like. I bet you it's not that much more interesting than what we discussed today, uh, to be honest <laughs> with you. I, I'm interested too, but people you're, are people. <laughs> you're comparing it to a Cool Stuff Ride Home podcast, these ancient no, scrolls no. on papyrus? No, but it's, you know, look at what they already deciphered. The fact that they say just because something's scarce doesn't make it more pleasant which, than when it's abundant, which I agree with, but is it really all that profound? <laughs> well, in AD really? 79 it was, and I would say there's still a lot of people who don't understand that concept. There are things that people seem to eat and divulge in only because they're hard to get their hands on. So demand shoots through the roof. Yes, but in general, you know, we're having the conversation right now. Are we philosophers? Should we put it in a scroll for someone to find? <laughs> hey, like every other person, it sounds like back then, also added the title of philosopher. I mean, if they had a <laughs> had a Twitter bio or LinkedIn bio, I have to believe it would say philosopher as one of their four job titles. Now, I'm not trying to take away from this because it is pretty cool, and I'm sounds, interested with the scrolls like you're trying as to take well. Away from this. I, it's something I wouldn't be able to do. I can't read this. <laughs> well, Reggie, not impressed with ancient papyrus scrolls being deciphered. That's the thesis of this story. I guess moving on. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Stepping away from ancient paper, let's go to space. Oh, One of come Saturn's on. <laughs> One of Saturn's 146 moons, it looks a little like a Death Star due to a large crater on its surface that resembles, you know, the laser array that the Death Star had where it shoots out and blows up planets. That's what it kind of looks like. However, uh, Mimas, the actual name of the moon, is likely to contain an ocean beneath its surface or at least that's what they believe they just discovered. 
Wow. Based on observations from NASA's Cassini spacecraft, they think the ocean is hidden 12 to 18 miles beneath the frozen surface. Valérie Linet, an astronomer at the Observatoire de Paris in France. Your French is impeccable, Reg. Thank you. Thank you. I've been working on it. <laughs> uh, she said, it's quite a surprise. If you look at the surface of Mimas, there's nothing that betrays the subsurface ocean. It's the most unlikely candidate by far, end quote. Now, they figured either had to be an ocean or it has an elongated core shrouded in ice. However, Lene added, there is no way to explain both the spin of Mimas and the orbit with the rigid interior. You definitely need to have a global ocean on which the icy shelf can slip, end quote. The moon is actually pretty small, barely 250 miles in diameter. The heavily cratered moon doesn't have the normal look of other moons in our solar system that have oceans. It lacks the fractures and geysers of moons like Saturn's Enceladus and Jupiter's Europa. As for the chances of life in the ocean on this moon, it may be way too young for that. Scientists believe the moon formed around the last 25 million years. David Rothy, a professor of planetary geosciences at the Open University, said there are better places to search for life in our solar system. Quote, there's no indication of connection between the internal ocean where life could survive and the surface or space where traces of life could be detected and sampled, such that we have done on the plumes of Enceladus and hope to do on the surface or plumes at Europa. He added, if there were life inside Mimas, it would be hidden by more than 20 kilometers of unbroken ice. If the ocean has existed for only 25 million years, that might not be enough time for life to get started and established. Europa and Enceladus are much more promising candidates, end quote. So while Mimas may not actually have life on it or is unexpected to have life on it compared to some of these other moons, it is still interesting, especially in the fact that it doesn't look like your normal moon that would have an underground ocean, I guess. I would like to dig into the surface to see if there are any ancient papyrus scrolls buried down there. That would be really cool. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Two things jumped out at me. The, uh, the diameter of this moon, you mentioned it's small. It really is. 250 miles is quite tiny for a celestial body like that. Pretty wild. And the other question that came to mind is, is in order to be considered an ocean, does it have to be salt water? Is, is that what we're we're talking about here? I think just a big body of water to be defined as ocean. Um, so I'm not 100 percent sure. Actually, I don't I don't know the answer to that question. If somebody else does cool stuff, commute at gmail.com. Feel free to let us know. I think it just has to do with the amount of water or the size of the water compared to the size of the moon. OK, yeah, please. Somebody somebody smarter than us. Please get at us there. Uh, as Reggie said, cool stuff, commute at gmail .com. I'd like to know the answer to that uh, because you, you mentioned, all right, it's it's frozen on the top. Well, it would take really, really cold temperatures, presumably for the oceans to freeze over uh, as salt water. So, uh, again, some scientist out there is probably going, man, you are an idiot. What are these questions? But uh, <laughs> that's fine. I, I get it. I probably am. So please uh, help us out in that regard. How's this for a catchy headline? Mutant wolves at Chernobyl have evolved to develop a resistance to cancer 35 years after what's considered the world's worst nuclear disaster. Well, let's start from the beginning here. Regardless of age, most of us have come to learn of the devastating nuclear disaster that unfolded at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant back in April of 1986. The number four reactor saw a sudden surge in power during what was supposed to be a low power test. This led to an explosion and fire that demolished the reactor building releasing massive amounts of radiation into the atmosphere. The accident rendered the area surrounding the plant uninhabitable for humans. Consequently, officials closed the area within 18 miles of the plant 
except for those with official business there. The Soviet and later Russian government evacuated about 115,000 people from the most heavily contaminated areas in 1986 and another 220,000 people in subsequent years, that per the U.S. Nuclear Regulatory Commission. A few weeks after the accident, crews completely covered the damaged reactor in a temporary concrete structure called the sarcophagus to limit the further release of radioactive material. The Soviet government also cut down and buried approximately one square mile of pine forest near the plant to reduce radioactive contamination at and near the site. Today, humans are permitted to visit Chernobyl as it's technically considered quote-unquote safe, but you won't want to stay long. Scientists estimate the area won't be habitable to humans again for another 20 thousand years due to the lasting effects of ground absorption of radiation. But as you undoubtedly surmised, or were perhaps wondering, there are still plenty of animals in the region, some of which have fared better than others. As noted at the top of this story, wolves are one of the animals that appear to have done quite well for themselves. These mutant wolves now roam the deserted streets of Chernobyl, having apparently developed resistance to cancer. And while the story of Chernobyl is inherently sad in a variety of ways, discovery of the wolves' evolution has raised hope the findings can help scientists fight the disease in humans. Kara Love is an evolutionary biologist and exotoxicologist at Princeton, and she's been studying how the Chernobyl wolves survive despite generations of exposure to radiation. In 2014, Love and her team visited what's known as the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone. It was there that they placed radio collars on wolves to track their movements. These collars now provide the team with instant data on the wolves' locations and their exposure to radiation. Blood samples were also collected at that time to study how the wolves' bodies react to radiation. What they discovered is this. Chernobyl wolves are exposed to upwards of 11.28 millirem of radiation every day for their entire lives. That's more than six times the legal safety limit for a human. That said, the wolves now have altered immune systems, similar to those of cancer patients undergoing radiation treatment. But perhaps most significantly, Love identified specific parts of the animal's genetic information that appears resilient to increased cancer risk. Of course, cancer research on humans has led to the discovery of mutations that increase cancer risk. But in this case, Love and her team are working to identify mutations that work in the opposite direction. That is to say, those that increase the odds of surviving cancer. So their research to date was presented last month in Seattle, but there's obviously still a lot of questions left to be unanswered. Unfortunately, the research team has been unable to return to Chernobyl in recent years due to the ongoing war in Ukraine and, of course, the global pandemic before that. So not entirely certain as to how quickly this will all progress, but needless to say, it is a an intriguing and perhaps to some extent promising discovery that maybe we can build upon in in subsequent years to help our fight our global fight really with cancer or against cancer now obviously you never want to use animals as a test subject but in this case the wolves actually kind of work pretty well that they can reproduce fairly quick mm -hmm. you don't need humans where you need to wait you know how many years before you can have a baby the wolves can do it within years so it makes sense that this evolution would happen fairly quickly with an animal like that you know, if we had humans living there, it would be centuries or more, I would think, before we could get any type of evolution or mutation in our genes to do this. So this is it's not everything that we planned. 
but it's great to see and could obviously lead to good causes. But I believe that's what the reason that this mutation happened is the quick reproduction cycles. Yeah, that that's probably part of it. And I, I, I think, you know, talking about humans being there, I'm not sure they would ever reach a stage of being able to to reproduce. I mean, we've, we've seen yeah, exactly. this, unfortunately, in uh, in history where you know, folks have have uh, undergone the the effects of of massive amounts of radiation, and it does not turn out well. And you know, I'm trying to be uh, very um, choose my words carefully here because I know it's a sensitive subject for a lot of folks. But um, but you know, in this case with the wolves, as you said, nobody ever wants this to happen. We didn't want to see it happen to any of the animals either. But it is a byproduct of uh, one of the world's largest disasters. Here we are. So. It is what it is at this point. You might as well learn from it as much as you can. And it it, it is clearly, um, I, I will say, a positive to see that these wolves seem to be thriving and developing resistance to, to the radiation that exists there. You know your favorite sparkling water, Bubbly? Well, guess what? It just got better because Bubbly is growing its family. That's right. Bubbly now has Bubbly Burst. Bubbly Burst is a sparkling water beverage with extra fruit flavor. An extra burst of fruit flavor for an extra burst of fun. There's zero sugar added. It's low calorie. It's the refreshing bubbles that you love in Bubbly, but it's 1% juice. Each sip is filled with a flavorful refreshment that adds a burst of fun and happiness to your day. And just like choosing amongst your favorite child, it's impossible. There's so many good flavors. Peach mango, triple berry, cherry lemonade, watermelon lime, pineapple tangerine, and tropical punch. I can't choose a favorite. But don't take my word for it. Try it for yourself today. Find Bubbly Burst in a store near you. I must be in a Debbie Downer state of mind lately because here is another This Day in History that I think is interesting, but definitely not uplifting. I think most of us are familiar with the radio play War of the Worlds by H.G. Wells and the panic that it caused. You may not realize the performance was copied a couple times, one of which was on February 12, 1949, and it led to several deaths. The second dramatization of War of the Worlds actually happened in Chile in 1944. It caused the same level of panic of listeners. Uh, no, no deaths, though. But on that February 12th one in 1949, that was in Ecuador. It left 15 people dead and 15 injured. Jeez. It all started when Leonardo Paez, who was the director of art at Radio Quito, and Eduardo Alcarez, the station's dramatic director, wanted to put on their own version of the radio play. The difference here that caused several deaths, though, it came down to several factors. First, the other two broadcasts started with an announcement that the upcoming radio play was a dramatization. Radio Quito did not. Wow. Instead, they broke into a middle of a song with a special report. After the event, Elcarez said that he begged Paez to make the dramatization announcement, but he refused. The other event that may have caused the deaths in the weeks before the broadcast, someone planted bogus UFO reports in the newspaper El Comercio, which also shared the same building as Radio Quito. So people were reading those UFO reports, and you know, you get to this radio play, there's a lot of buildup there. At 11 p.m. on February 12th, the radio play started, and they announced that the Martian invasion was happening in a town 20 miles south of Quito, and poisonous gas cloud was killing everything in its path. When the chaos started, the station started to announce that it was all a hoax, because you know, people were panicking at that point, so they finally decided to say it was all a hoax. Well... People were upset. A riot started in front of the station building. People were throwing stones and setting the building on fire with over 100 people in the building. 
Some of the people jumped off the roof to escape the flames. Uh, that night, AP News and Reuters reported, quote, the mob attacked and burned the building of the newspaper El Comercio, which housed the radio station and killed 15 persons and injured 15 others, end quote. Several people were charged after the riot, including Paez, Alcaraz, and the actor Eduardo Palese. Alcaraz tried to escape but was caught. Paez, however, did manage to escape and laid low for six years, made his way to Venezuela. Uh, however, his girlfriend and nephew died in those riots. In 1982, he published a book that recounted his view of what happened that night. So again, definitely not uplifting in any way. Uh, I didn't realize there were other dramatizations of War of the Worlds like that and one that caused uh, several people to die, not because of the dramatization directly, but the panic that it caused and then the people getting upset with the fact that they caused that panic. Well, th I mean, that is wholly irresponsible on the part of these two guys to not put a disclaimer up front and to do all this after learning what happened with I mean, presumably they had to know what happened in the United States with H.G. Wells telling War of the Worlds. What did you think was going to happen in your market or your area when you do the same thing and you don't put anything up front? I mean, they had a disclaimer in the U.S. and it still caused massive amounts of yeah. panic. And you and have to take yourself back to a time when radio was the way people consumed pretty much all their news. It was the main communication source out there. So people are listening to this actively, a lot of people. And to, to go into that as a quote unquote journalist and think, yeah, we're going to do this for entertainment purposes and it's not going to cause any problems is just wildly stupid. I remember doing college radio and people not wanting to do like this type of thing, but there are certain rules like, hey, let's just do this. I'm like, no, 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 you can't. There are rules against that. And there, there's a reason those rules are in place. The Chile one also had the disclaimer at the beginning, and that one also still caused panic. So yes, they knew exactly what they were doing. I think they wanted to see how far they could take it. Yeah, that's uh, that's just wholly irresponsible. And it's it's a it's a shame that innocent folks died as a result of the mob coming to the building. But there's a part of me that understands the the frustration that that mob was was dealing with, because I, undoubtedly that was a lot of panic for a lot of people, including families with young kids trying to figure out what they should be doing in that instance. And yeah, today we can look back and go, well, obviously it's far-fetched. Martians were, you have to put yourself back at that, you know, at that time with the knowledge that people had, you didn't have the internet, you didn't have anything to go to, to check and make sure or, or verify or validate what you're hearing on the radio. What you hear there is, is, is what you believed. And it, it was supposed to be at least in this country, anyway, it was supposed to be a source of truth. And clearly, they, uh, those, these two individuals in Ecuador at the time were, were uh, playing very fast and loose with that, unfortunately. That'll do it for another edition of Cool Stuff Ride Home. You can always reach us at coolstuffcommute at gmail.com. Feel free to correct our mistakes or let us know if uh, there's anything we should be updating as well. I'm Reggie Rizzo. He's Marcus Path. We'll be back with another edition of Cool Stuff tomorrow.